Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of the Commercial Real Estate 101 Meetup Group. Uh, in today's episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, so as many of you guys know, I am actually an author of a couple books. Uh, the first book that I've written that I wrote in the Commercial Real Estate series was called Before You Sign That Lease, The Small Business Owner's Guide to Leasing Commercial Space, which is a comprehensive guide for individuals interested in uh, leasing commercial property. I released that book last year and had a book launch event that went very, very well. And was a, it was a great, um, great turnout. And, and, you know, I got a lot of great and positive feedback on that book. Um, and, and most recently, I actually released my latest book in the commercial real estate series called Before You Buy That Building, uh, The Small Business Owner's Guide to Buying Commercial Real Estate. And so it is a comprehensive guide for small business owners interested in buying commercial real estate for their business use. Now, Obviously, the target audience is business owners, but you know this is also a great reference guide for agents out there uh, that are looking to you know better serve their clients. Uh, my hope is that the book can be a good reference point, so that as you're going through the process, you can you know help navigate it uh, a little bit more efficiently and effectively. And so uh, today's episode is actually a recording of the book launch event that happened uh, August 10th of 2022. Uh, it was a great event, and what how the structure of the of the of the event went is that at the beginning I talk a little bit about myself, my backstory, what got me into authorship, and then I share one of the the key topics of the book, and then we opened it up to Q and A. Uh, we had a lot of really good and engaging questions, so I'm hopeful that you guys will gain value from this podcast episode. So let's go ahead and dive right into the podcast. First off, thank you all so much for stopping by. It's been amazing to see how many people have come through the doors. And, you know, all you guys, I've, I've known you over the years, and you guys have been here to support me from the beginning. So I really appreciate everything you guys do. Um, as far as other shout outs, I wanted to give a shout out to, I don't see Will here, but he's the owner of the, of the property, and, you know, he allowed us to use the space. So really glad that we were able to do that. And then, second, if you guys haven't grabbed a card yet for Alvio, um, he's one of my clients. We're looking to finalize the lease deal hopefully here soon for him and their restaurant space. So definitely grab their card and try to support them as well because they do really good work. So um, as far as the, you know, this, the structure of how I was going to approach it, I was just going to tell you a little bit about myself, you know, kind of explain what got me into writing in the first place. And then from there, I'll share like a quick insight from the book and then we'll just open up to Q&A and you guys can kind of ask whatever questions you guys want. So um, as far as, you know, who I am, I know mo most of you guys know me a little bit, but, you know, as far as my history is concerned, um, my name is Rafael Collazo. I was born in Northeast Italy. My dad's uh, Puerto Rican, my mom's Italian. He was in the Air Force, so he was stationed at Aviano Air Base. Uh, met my mom there, and then ultimately had my brother and I. I have a twin brother um, who lives in Phoenix right now. Um, we traveled around Europe until I was about 14, so I've lived in Germany for a couple years. We were stationed at Baumholder, which is an army base down there. Then I was moved over to Shape, which is Supreme Headquarters, Allied Powers Europe. It's like the NATO headquarters down there. And then I moved to Arizona, where I went to high school in near Fort Huachuca, which is another army base down there. Uh, I went to Arizona State, got an, a degree in industrial engineering and minor in economics, and then got into the software space. So I was a developer and consultant for a company that implemented software systems for government agencies, and I traveled around the country. Uh, I lived in DC for a couple years. I was in Puerto Rico for several years on a big project for the island to replace their financial software system. And then Hurricane Maria hit in late 2017, and that project got put on hold. And I got moved here temporarily. Um, and then once that project got back up and going, uh, the project manager here wanted to keep me around. So I stuck around and you know, transitioned away from what I was doing before in like mid-2019. And I've been doing commercial real estate brokerage ever since. So that's kind of what I've been doing here. Um, as far as the inspiration for writing, why I got into authorship, I mean, I'm an engineer by trade. I'm not, 
a writer nor communicator to start off with. That wasn't my forte in school. I was always really good at math and science. That was just like what was my knack. Um, so I actually started writing when I moved to Puerto Rico for the first time in 2016. Um, at the time, you would think that I had it made. Uh, I was a software implementation consultant. I was making a lot of money. Um, I was on a, 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 a apartment that was literally a stone's throw away from the beach. Like you could throw a rock from my apartment to the beach. But inside I felt lost and confused and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And anyone in that 24, 25 range probably knows that type of feeling. And so I went through a period of self-exploration, started learning a lot about myself through just researching online. And as I was learning all this information, I thought what better way to convey this to the world than to start writing it out in some form or fashion. And so I started a blog called The Strong Professional back in 2016, and every other week I would release a blog article that discussed the topic pertaining to something that I had studied uh, for, that, for that period of time. Um, and then I did that for about 18 months, and then after you know, doing that for a while, I realized that I'd already written about 35,000 words, and I'd written, uh, read an article that mentioned that a 50,000 word book was essentially 200 pages, and that was the inspiration. I said, oh, well, all I have to do is add 10 to 15,000 more words, round it out, and that became my first book. And so. That was the first book in, that I'd written back in 2017. It was called The Millennial Playbook, Proven Success Strategies for the Millennial Generation. And then a series followed, which was uh, uh, Nine Secrets to Living a Rich Life, The Young Professional's Guide to Getting Ahead of Work, and Paving Your Road to Financial Freedom, which was a part of this Millennial Playbook series. And it focused on topics pertaining to personal development, professional development, exercise, health, eating, habits, and finances. Um, I got into commercial real estate brokerage in mid-2019. and. Granted, same thing applied, right? So I decided, oh, well, I've already written all these books on personal professional development. I'm getting a brokerage. What better way to be able to create a thought leadership platform and, and create information that people can consume because the commercial real estate industry is pretty opaque. It's hard to really get, get information in a, at a, at a, in a read, read, uh, readable format. And so I said, why not create a book series? And so last year, I see several of you guys who were here. Joel was actually, I, I had the book launch at his venue, uh, which was awesome. Uh, that was for my last book, which is before you sign that lease, The Small Business Owner's Guide to Leasing Commercial Space. And you were there too, of course. There's like a lot of people here that were there as well. Um, and then this most recent book is Before You Buy That Building, The Small Business Owner's Guide to Buying Commercial Real Estate. And this is going to be a series as well. So I'm going to be focused. Next book is going to be called Before You Sell That Building. Uh, you know, my business partner Jeff and I are getting in the development space. So we're going to be, I'm going to write a book once we get a few deals under our belt called Before You Develop That Building. And then as we start raising money, which we're going to have to at some point in the near future, uh, I'm going to write a book called Before You Invest in That Building. And that's going to be like the passive investor's guide to, to you know, investing with someone. So that's the premise of the series. Uh, as far as, you know, a quick item to share, um, you know, I thought, you know, I'd share one of the ideas from the book pertaining to due diligence. Um, the process of due diligence is a pretty long process. And so I, you know, I could stay here for hours to talk about it, but you know, I'll share you know, one of the key insights that I think is extremely important to do. So you know, we'll focus on the three parts of the due diligence process, which is physical inspections, there's financial and property inspections, and then there's the environmental piece. So as far as the physical inspection is concerned, typically I recommend people to uh, involve a commercial property inspector in their analysis. 
Um, you know, residential inspectors and commercial inspectors typically follow different standards. So when you're working with a commercial inspector, you want to make sure that they, in fact, follow the right standards pertaining to commercial inspections and that they, in fact, have experience doing so. Because commercial buildings are a lot different than residential buildings. You could be inspecting an uh, you know, industrial building, an office building that has elevators. So you really want to make sure that they, in fact, know how to inspect the right type of building. So that's the first piece. And then if you start getting into the report, because typically when you have a commercial inspection, they're going to give you a report. Um, as you start digging into it and you start realizing there's some red flags here and there, that's when you involve service professionals like HVAC technicians, roofers, or whatever else to really get down deep into the analysis to make sure you actually know what you're buying. Um, the second piece is going to be the property data. A lot of that has to do with the, um, the documents associated with the, the property itself. So you're going to want to ask for uh, you know, trailing 12 for um, uh, electric and water. You're going to want to know property taxes for the property. So when you buy a property, you, typically you're going to be reassessed the following year. So that's something you need to consider as well. Um, along with that, you want to make sure that you have the service contracts to review that make sure that all the mechanicals have been properly vetted. Um, along with that, uh, big ticket items, you're going to want to make sure that they in fact are actually um, uh, within the, the time frame as far as their replacement cost is concerned. And then on the tenant side, if you have a tenant that is in the property, you're going to want to get what's known as an estoppel agreement in place. Essentially what that means is that it verifies the contents of the lease agreement to make sure that in fact you know what you're getting into. Because a lot of times, you know, a, a landlord could provide you with a lease that, you know, isn't what the, the tenant signed and there's some disagreement in some capacity and you want to make sure that's vetted out before you actually get down the line. And there's several lawyers in here so they'll be able to kind of give you an insight. So that's high level on that front. And then finally, um, one thing that typically isn't super common on the residential front is environmental assessments. It's much more common on the commercial front. Typically, lenders are going to have threshold requirements. So, you know, if a, if a, if a, if a property's uh, worth XYZ amount of money, they're going to usually require an environmental assessment. Or if for some reason there's, they suspect that, you know, there's been a, um, that there's been a, a, a laundromat, uh, not a laundromat, I'm sorry, a, a, a dry cleaner or gas station or some other form of business that could potentially contaminate the site, uh, they're also going to require you to per perform an environmental assessment. Typically, there's three phases of environmental assessment. There's a phase one, which essentially is a very preliminary background check of all the documentation affiliated with the property to make sure that, you know, that, there's, that, that there's not really something that is, is of concern there. If they determine that there may be some concern there, they're going to require a phase two, which requires you to bore into the ground, and that can be very expensive. So a lot of times, if there's a phase two environmental assessment, you're going to require the, the seller to, to concede in some capacity. And then finally, phase three is really the cleanup. So you determine what your course of action is going to be based on you know, the, 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 the assessment that's provided. So that's a quick overview. It's obviously not, you know. Um, I could, I could talk here for hours, but anyways. So that's, that's it. I wanted to share a quick idea. Um, other than that, feel free to ask away. I wanted to keep it kind of you know, cordial and open-ended, so. Yeah. Um, so how do you uh, think about like, underwriting the future? Uh -huh. Like thinking about kind of where is this asset class going to be in three to five years? Because that's the biggest thing. Like you can underwrite like, oh, in like 12 months, we could probably be here in two years, we could probably be here, but if you end up holding it five years and got it ten years, like, mm -hmm. where, like, how do you underwrite the future? Well, you know, there's, there's several schools of thought, and, and that's really, I think it depends on who you are as a person and whether or not you're actually investing other people's money. 
because you know a lot of times this is one of the things that was that I saw last year that I think is going to manifest itself later on is that a lot of people were pitching returns on investments, but then when you look at their underwriting criteria, they were projecting that you were going to exit at a four cap, you know, or you know these these unrealistic expectations of what the future is going to hold, and you know anyone will tell you you can't predict the future, especially not five ten years in the future. Right. You know who knows if there's not is going to be a catastrophic event in, in the future, and so you know what I typically recommend is you know you can't ever know exactly what's going to happen, but just be as conservative as possible, in particular if you're going to be investing other people's money because you're a steward or a fiduciary to that as well. So, With presumably um, most of our being within real estate, touch, or research yeah. in the industry, what is something, which, let me back up by saying uh, thanks for writing the book, the book uh, continue to contribute to our industry that we love. Mm -hmm. What is something like that, um, you know, when you go buy an investment property, buy 100000 sell for, what is something like that uh, cost, if you don't mind me asking, uh, like to, to write a book? Oh, the book, oh. Like, what's your contribution to the investment to, to put out a product? Oh, to like start to finish? Yeah, so when I first started writing, and again, I'm, I'm historically not a good writer. Uh, I just got really good over time. And there's this book that changed my life. It's called The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. And it talks about small, consistent action every single day that's in a positive direction adds up to massive results. So that I read when I was 23, and I was like, that's like game changing for me. I can't, because you, you think, okay, look at the Oprahs, look at the, all these other people that have achieved massive things in their life. They didn't, they didn't get there right overnight. It takes years, right? It takes 20 years to become an overnight success, as they say. So it's like, you know, for me, it was like, okay, what can I do on a day-to-day -to, -day to make sure that I can eventually be where I want to be? And that started with me with writing, which was, I think, 250 to 500 words a day is what I stuck to for a while. I mean, we're talking four or five years of doing that. So that's how it started. Uh, as far as the process is concerned from start to finish, it's all self-published. So um, essentially what I do is I hire someone on Fiverr to format the book. I also have someone on Fiverr that creates the... the, the Fiverr? Yeah, it's like a, a gig, gig economy, like the, the, yeah, the gig economy. So, you know, the, 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 cover, the, the cover was like 250, 300. The formatting's maybe 70, 80 bucks. Um, and then, what else? Editing. So I edited it myself, and then I send it out to an editor, and they charge maybe 100 bucks, 150 bucks. So all in all, you're looking at half, 500 bucks, and you turn it out. Like, I've gotten to a point now where I can, I can write a book in less than six months. But that's through iteration. That takes time. It's not something that I've, you know, it ha doesn't happen overnight. What's your business strategy for the books? Why do you write them? Well, I, I think it's a combination of a few things. One, it, you know, one of the best ways to learn something is to write about it. So I feel like it, it's an exercise in me learning about a lot of things because it takes a while for me to research and do stuff. And then I apply my, pre my lessons into the book as well. So it gives me time to reflect on that. As far as the reason I write the books is, is it's a thought leadership platform. Right? So you're trying to become the, the go-to expert. So when people think commercial real estate, they think Raphael. That's what I want people to think. So that's, part of, that's the main reason I write. Um, but again, as I said before, it's an exercise in, in me becoming a more effective agent as well. And you know, long-term, a developer, investor, everything else. And um, thanks for sharing. I want to highlight something real quick. Um, <coughs> I, I, I might be the only person that is in involved in the real estate here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So thank you for allowing me to stay. Yeah, thank you for allowing me to stay. So that's first and foremost. But then, um, with the question that you asked, sir, um, you had like highlighted the gig economy, mm -hmm. and Fiverr is a, 
in direct correlation with the gig economy. That is not stopping. That is only going to grow and is only going to be like at a higher height. So as we approach the way that the world is moving, um, damn, I didn't even give y'all control of who I am. All right, so my name is Joe Franklin. Uh, I, I work within technology, but I'm a part of the Louisville community. I serve on various boards like Venture Connectors. Uh, I was honored as Louisville Business First 40 and 40 based on community engagement. But I also uh, I served on GLI's Talent Steering Committee for the last three years and various other aspects of things, right? So I'll just keep it at that. I just need some credibility for when I ask this question. Um, <laughs> Pop-up shops, like restaurants for a day, mm -hmm. right? All of these things that are like 21st century, gig economy type, uh, micro-dosing type uh, wave, how does that impact the way that uh, organizations approach commercial real estate and understand that profit not only lives in something fully sustainable, but it could be something done in a very finite manner? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a pretty profound question. I would say, you know, if you're talking retail, historically retail has, be, is, has continued to shrink as far as, far as footprint's concerned. So even on the larger scale, you're starting to see a lot smaller of a footprint on the retail side. Obviously with COVID, that's elaborated or, or increased the need for, you know, drive-throughs and whatever else. As far as like pop-ups are concerned, you're starting to see some developments out there that are, you know, incorporate or, or being more affordable to, you know, smaller companies that want to get started in the restaurant space. It's just an example. There's a developer in, in Nashville, his name's Tyler Cobble, and he has a development down there where he takes a car wash. So you take, you imagine the car wash bays, right? They're about 120, 100, 150 square feet, right? They're not very big. But he takes the car wash bays and he builds them out as like little kitchens and you can lease those out to, you know, smaller restaurants and you don't have to charge that much, you know? But they, let's say they charge, you know, $1,500 a month for that kitchen space. But from a price per square foot perspective, as an investor, you're still making a lot on a price per square foot perspective, but you're affording opportunities to a lot more people in the economy that are looking to do something on a smaller scale to try things out. And you can only imagine that that, that, that gentleman has like a long list of people that want to capitalize on that space. And you know, if God forbid one of the, the spaces doesn't work, you know, another concept can come, come along. And so you know, as far as entrepreneurship is concerned, obviously it's a risk. It's part of just getting out there and trying something new, but you know, there's definitely ways to make money and also support small business. And I hope to see more of that development here in Louisville. Yeah, absolutely. And then the last thing too, is that um, being a part of the Bingham Fellows, our whole project right now is about uh, revitalizing downtown. Uh -huh. And those topics have come up in our meetings. And at this juncture, we just don't know how to like navigate that, mainly because there's been such a traditional business model as it pertains to real estate. So I was very curious as to like your thoughts on it, mm -hmm. understanding the future, mm -hmm. but at the same time, like, how does that like look to, to Louisville? How do we implement that within like this, this space? So that's what I want to say. Yeah, yeah. No, you're 100% right. And, and, and I think it's a little give, give and take on, on the public side and on the private side. Because, uh, you know, it has to at least make sense somewhat economically. So that, that's one of the biggest hurdles a lot of times with development is they want to do the development, but it just doesn't make, it, it, it doesn't work economically. And so it's hard to, to, to try to tell, convince someone, say, hey, you should be doing this if you can't even make the numbers work and they can't make it any semblance of profitability, any semblance of profitability. And so, you know, I think there needs to be a little bit more give and take on both sides. What that looks like, 
I mean, it just depends on what initiatives you want to pursue. I think the biggest thing, like you said, downtown, and we talked about it briefly, was the residential side. I think with, with commercial, it's interesting because commercial follows residential. So the more residential you know, foot traffic you get on a day-to-day -day basis, that drives other commercial opportunities. And so I think that's, that's the starting point. There's a lot of office buildings right now that are vacant, and I know more are going to come online. And so hopefully we can convert some of those into residential uh, or, you know, I know there's a hotel shortage. There's hotels popping up everywhere. So maybe utilize some of that on that front. But I really think that the residential side is what you need to pursue long term. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I do. Yeah. And I'm gonna, there's Audible going to be li it's gonna go live in probably about three or four weeks. Are you reading the Audible? Uh, well, just the commercial real estate books for now. Uh, I, my other books, some of them are really long, so it would take me a long time to do it. Th these are 150 pages, so they're pretty quick. So, you know, the total audio on my first book, I think, was like two and a half hours. This one's about two and a half hours, too. So. Was it hard to get on? No, no. It's, it's, again, a lot of this is, is easy, you know, and, and, you know, it's not published. Like, I'm not going through published Penguin Random House or anything like that. This is more of just... You know, taking the time to record the, each chapter and then pushing it, going to Fiverr and having them edit each chapter. And then they format it to the specs for Audible and I just upload it. And then, you know, the cover that I designed, the guy provides you with a ebook cover, a full, you know, paperback cover, and they also provide with the Audible cover. And it's all in one, so. Yeah. Yes. I do. I do sleep. I snore. Melanie complains all the time. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions? So I guess if there's one thing you want people to take away from this book, after all the hard work that you put into it, what would that be? Um, you know. It's, it's good to have a reference, you know, I, I don't know. I, f I feel like, you know, anytime I don't know something or I'm trying to something new, it's always nice to have something to go back to and just kind of review. So if this can become a reference for someone who wants to buy a building or, you know, a, a res even a residential agent that wants to get more into the, the, re the, the commercial space, like this is a good foundation to start off with. Because I felt like even today, like I don't think there's a lot of information out there and I feel like I'm fumbling through stuff half the time. And so, you know, having something like, if I, if I had this when I started, I would have been like, oh my God, this is great. But, you know, 2020 hindsight. Or great closing gifts, right? Great clo no, and, and I'll say this, you know, that's another reason, you know, we talked about, you know, the, the book. Like, anytime I meet with clients. True bluegrass. True bluegrass, yeah. That's true. Well, and, and, and it's interestingly enough, like, I've secured listings with, because of the book. Well, not because of the book, but it, it, it kind of, you, you kill them with content, and you meet with them, you give them a copy of the book, you give them, you know, a commercial context list that I created. I, I created a bunch of stuff, and I just overload them with stuff. And they're like, oh my gosh, I've never really experienced this. And it, 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 it does make a huge difference. And it's made a difference in my ability to secure listings. And I'm sure it will continue to help me long term. When is before you build that building going to come out? Before you build or before you develop that building? <laughs> Coming. I mean, we'll get there. We're getting there. We're getting there. I know. We talk. We talk too. I know. Joe's Joe's like, he's in the corner. Uh, yeah. Yeah. With everything you have going on, you're super busy, right? Yeah. How do you stay focused? I know I have that problem, I'm sure. Yeah. I feel like I'm, ooh, all the time, but I'm not writing books. Yeah. And 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I'm not perfect either. Like I want to make what it, what's up? Don't don't have kids. That I mean, that makes a huge difference. I'm telling you. I, I know my, my my friends that have kids. It makes a difference. But but I also will say I will say this. Like you know, I I w I try to. My mornings are pretty important to me, you know, so I wake up really early, I go to the gym and, and, and take some time in the morning to do things that I need to do. Um, I, I think the most important thing you can do is systematize things. And I didn't really start doing this until relatively recently, but, you know, creating systems for the things that you want to do is, I think, one of the most important things you could possibly do. Um, someone said, I think it's like you, 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 you don't rise to the level of your competition, you fall to the level of your preparation. So it's like... Um, you know, so, so for me, like I, now I have a virtual assistant that I'm, I've been working with for a while. You know, I've created all the systems on like, you know, a Google Drive, create all the processes. I recorded myself on Loom, you know, telling, her how, or telling this person how to, you know, do all the things that they need to do. And then I offloaded a lot of that stuff. So like for us now, it's like we were just record the podcast. I literally can, uh, my VA sends the link to the, to the person that we're going to interview. They schedule an interview. They show up on the day. We record. I upload to the cloud and they take care of everything else. So it's like, but that's, that took time. That took processes. That took time to sit down and document everything and then offload to other people. So, um, so it may seem like I'm doing a lot of this stuff, but I'm not. It seems like you're doing a lot of stuff. It does. It does, but, but, but that's the thing. is like now I've involved other people, so it makes it, it makes it seem like I'm doing way more than I'm actually doing. Now I'm kind of, I've offloaded a lot of that. So. Processes, and now you just need to plug the right people. Exactly, exactly, and that's 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 another story. I mean, we could we could talk about you know hiring. What's up? On systems, yeah. At some point, yeah. I was thinking about courses or something. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. Awesome. Thank you.